Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I'm so excited to have this guest on today. Uh, we had the opportunity to finally meet at Sunstone in the flesh, and um, we've been uh, talking to each other here and there. And uh, Bryce Blankenagel, welcome to the program today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Bryce is a history communicator and independent research who hosts the Topical Glass Box podcast, as well as the serialized Mormon history podcast, Naked Mormonism. And the reason I'm having you on is we're going to talk about your podcast because that's how a lot of people know you. But I, more importantly, I want us to talk about this paper that just came out um, with the John Whitmer Historical Association Journal. Of course, many of you are probably familiar, newly familiar with it because of the Joseph Smith photograph uh, situation. Um, and you wrote a paper. It's called Voices and Visions in Early 19th Century America and the Book of Mormon. And you're uh, you're a co-author along with Brian Kassenbrock. That uh, is correct. Right. Yes. Okay. So uh, first of all, what made you, um, you know, th this is a fascinating topic. I, the idea, so this is the thing, folks. Now, this is not a new idea. Now, this is even something that's been talking about with early Christianity, that there might have been the use of psychedelics or hallucinogenic products. That perhaps the first century church of, uh, was using, perhaps the wine was spiked. There's also the theory that perhaps the burning bush might have been a hallucinogenic plant that uh, Moses would have been dealing with. So there's just been this theory that's been around since the mid 20th century, I guess, of this idea of hallucinogenic uh, psychedelic experiences used in religious experiences historically. And then what you did was you actually took a lot of some of those ideas and thought, is it, you know, uh, applying it to the early church? of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you call it the visionary period, which goes from 1823 to 1837, I believe. Um, and and you that would be the time period that you think that perhaps there were maybe substances used to help uh, induce visions and, and, and experiences. Would that be a good summation there? Yeah, that's that's a, a great way to kind of uh, introduce anyone who isn't familiar with the subject matter uh, to this entire subject. And it is one that is understandably controversial, uh, but also uh, one that is, I think, provocative and interesting. And just because something is controversial or provocative doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. I mean, as long as it has a reasonable foundation, I think things that are provocative should be discussed. Um, <clears throat> that isn't to say that all or all all ideas deserve platforms. Uh, so I actually stumbled on this in the reverse direction. Uh, so some people uh, ha who have studied the history of psychedelics will, um, you know, th they may dabble into Mormon history and say, "Oh, this sounds like, you know, this this sounds like the ancient Soma worship. This sounds like something I'm very familiar with." Um, however, for myself, I was uh, studying Mormon history just for the purposes of creating naked Mormonism. Um, um, you know, a little cart before the horse in that. I wanted to understand Mormon history. I started studying it. I wanted to find a podcast that was just Mormon history and it didn't exist. So that's when I started Naked Mormonism. And I just did a serialized take of the early history of Joseph Smith and the church. Uh, so I am into the early visionary period of the church and some of the more mystical and esoteric practices are, you know, becoming much more vivid into my my mind as I'm studying uh, things like uh, D. Michael Quinn's early Mormonism and the magic worldview. And that's really helping to understand and get a broader uh, sense of what the mindset of the early 19th century frontier American was like. 
And um, I was studying specifically the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony. And there had been a couple of signals that that, that the odd things had been going on. Uh, the school of the prophets would sometimes go until three or four in the morning uh, and they would walk home. Um, and, and it's like, I mean, aren't they they're studying scriptures until four in the morning? I mean, maybe, but is there something else going on here? Uh, so a few signals had come up and then, you know, the early, uh, the early elders would also do, um, they would uh, essentially bathe themselves in whiskey that was infused with cinnamon as well. Um, so they're, they're utilizing herbs and they're utilizing obviously the vegetation and the wildlife around them in order to survive and for crafting medicine for ceremonial purposes, like with the whiskey uh, cinnamon in it. And uh, you read the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony and it is uh bonkers <laughs> it is absolutely a trip i mean people are seeing god walking through the pews people are thinking that the place is on fire when it's actually not people are hearing uh auditory hallucinations there's a sound of a rushing mighty wind that they're hearing uh people are are seeing all sorts of very interesting and incredible things and uh, I, as I discussed this on the podcast, I kind of just thought it flippantly like this. It sounds like these guys are on drugs. It sounds like psychedelics. So I put that podcast out and I re was reached out to by one of my listeners uh, who came, became one of my co-authors. His name is Cody Nakoni. And uh, he he just sent me an email and said, you, you don't know what you stumbled onto. This is something that's actually really interesting. And here's a paper on it. Uh, so Cody and I met, we, we began a friendship and began a working relationship as well. And, uh, the, 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 uh, paper that he actually sent me was by Robert Beckstead is titled restoration in the sacred mushroom. And that was a 2007 sunstone presentation. And it essentially lays out the blueprints for what I call the Smith entheogen theory. Now, of course, an entheogen is a term that is used within the psychedelic literature to describe either a practice or a substance that is used uh, to induce a theophanatic event or to, to cause a sense of theophany in the user. And um, the, the, this this restoration of the sacred mushroom uh, from Robert Beckstead, somebody who's coming from a clinical background, uh, has medical practice uh, under his belt, uh, and is very familiar with many of the substances or synthetic forms of many of the substances that are described. Um, so uh, I, I read this paper, Cody and I begin this wor working relationship, and we write a paper uh, and self-publish it, uh, essentially a pamphlet, you know, 35 pages or so. Uh, we self-publish it and then hand it out at Sunstone when we do a presentation on it in 2017 and uh this becomes you know uh we title it revelation through hallucination a treatise on the smith entheogen theory uh so we took robert beckstead's blueprints and we essentially built the structure that he described uh you know in academic and uh, journalistic terms uh, so uh, fast forward a few more years, Robert Beckstead, uh, Cody Nakoni, myself, and then uh, uh, an editor named Michael Winkleman worked together to make a large scale paper that we published in the Journal of Psychedelic Studies. And that was published in back in uh, October of 2019. And that is titled "The Entheogenic Origins of Mormonism: A Working Hypothesis." And this is a this is a master class, huge piece. Uh, it goes through the entirety of uh, early Mormon history and describes the various uh, signals that we've been able to find that psychedelics were likely used. Um, and then, of course, I worked together with Brian Kassenbrock, who holds some uh, expertise in the Book of Mormon specifically, in order to uh, write the paper that is in the. Uh, the john whitmer journal here 
that's the voices and visions um he was able to utilize his expertise in the book of mormon to discuss uh some of the visionary sequences and the visionary literature that's baked within the early pages of the book of mormon while i was able to provide the backstory or the the back history of of these these processes uh, so that's that's kind of a, a you know long story short of uh, how the paper came to be and how much or how long I've been kind of studying this as my pet theory of early Mormon history. You know, um, I find this topic really fascinating, and I I try to think I, I try to wear a different hat. Like for instance, there are times when I'm a believer, and I and but there are also times when I put on my skeptic hat or my naturalistic hat. When I did my three hour thing on the Book of Mormon, on Mormon stories, I said, this is a naturalistic explanation of how I think the Book of Mormon came to be. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so this does not, this this to me, I look at it this way, if there's no God, and there are no angels, and there is no supernatural, mm-hmm. how do these things happen? Mm-hmm. And when I hear reports of people who have like experiences, visionary hallucinogenic experiences, when they're doing a uh, you know, di- different microdosing or d- they're doing the psychosyllabin, the LSD and all this kind of stuff. And they have like profound religious experiences that are life changing. Mm-hmm. And that gives me pause because I'm like, okay, this is really fascinating to me. Like if somebody literally like takes something, they're on their deathbed and they take something and they no longer fear death. That's like amazing. Or they're a two, three pack a day smoker. They go on a, a trip and they decide just to walk away from smoking. I mean, it's remarkable. It's almost miraculous. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm. People say, don't go there, Steve. Well, I'm going to go there. <laughs> That's why I'm going to go there. I find this to be an interesting <laughs> theory hypothesis. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, like you know, we had talked about this off camera. That, and I think it's yeah, and you mentioned it in the paper, I believe too, is that you know. Up until very recently in American history, uh, most of the, there was no war on drugs. Most of this Correct. stuff was legal, and people had access to a lot of different things, especially in the 19th century. You talk about how um, Emma gives a recipe for a healing salve that also includes like psychedelic materials. Um, so this is very common. So not only do you have like the Christian worldview, you have the magical worldview, and you also have this idea of you know. Uh, herbal, you know, dealing with herbs and, and remedies like that. Um, that's interesting stuff to me, dude. I, I think it is interesting. And I, I try and uh, contemplate the audience for these, these subjects, because this, this uh, historians do not have access to deity. And it should it should not influence your writing and your research into early or into any religious history, uh, whether or not you're a believer. That should not have any influence on the end product on your specific conclusions, uh, because that is no longer history. That is theology. Right. So uh, in exploring the realm of history, obviously, we, we seek naturalistic explanations. And of course, for. Uh, when I'm considering the audience of who may be uh, consuming, uh, you know, any of these papers or the eventual resulting book on this material, how are they going to feel about this? Uh, because uh, one of the pr- primary reasons that I believe that this connection hasn't had a whole lot of time and research devoted to it is 
Mormons just don't do drugs, right? Uh, so the, the, the chances that a Mormon is going to be reading early Mormon history and have the background of psychedelic usage to be able to interpret the material that they are consuming about this visionary era of early Mormonism is very scant. There's very little chance that they're going to have enough of an overlap of expertise in these two completely disparate fields to be able to interpret that information and bring a naturalistic explanation forward. That is also to say that this may challenge some people's explanations for the Book of Mormon. Those who, uh, you know, believe in a divine intervention, or they believe that there was, you know, the angel with the plates and the and the, the the correlated history uh, as told, sort of by Joseph Smith, sort of. Uh, for people who believe that, this may be challenging, but. I also want to point out that for people who use psychedelics, both in the 19th century as well as today, um, the vast, vast majority of them are you know, very inclined towards spiritualism and towards belief in God and towards seeing God's you know, hand, moving hand placed in every little aspect of their lives. The magic worldview certainly does still exist. Uh, it's just something that is seen because of the the cultural and the societal prejudices against drugs obviously it's seen as oh how dare you that is awful that is evil this is something that god would not approve of but psychonauts are like these are gifts from heaven this is manna this is what we do to commune with deity so i the, the, I, I think that uh, all of that is to say that i think that the smith entheogen theory need not challenge the faith convictions of people who are consuming this mm. i'm looking for naturalistic explanations and i'm looking for repeatable experimentation and it turns out when you have a group of people and you induce uh, a, a psychedelic state through the use of entheogens uh, into that group of people it turns out a lot of them are going to have visionary experiences whether they whether they lived in the 19th century or they live today so I'm just looking for naturalistic explanations. Now, I, I want to push back a little bit on this theory a little bit. Um, I have experience being, uh, as a charismatic Christian, I have been to Pentecostal services, and um, I, I, I've spoken in tongues just one time. Um, and I've been in rooms where you see very similar things happening that happened in the early days of the Church of Christ, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I... I know that I know for a fact that there wasn't anything going on. I mean, I I wasn't exposed to anything. I, I guess the question I have for you is: Is it possible that this? Like, part of me thinks it's really fascinating this theory, but then I've been in rooms that have been very similar to those Kirtland Temple experiences. That nothing mm -hmm. was, there. There was no wine was being spiked or anything like that. What do you have to say to that? Like that that these these experiences could have been without any inducement from some kind of psychedelics. Yeah, um, I'm going to actually hearken to uh, a passage from the paper, uh, because I, I think this is an important point to make and an important point to discuss, because this uh, taps into the concept of endogenous versus exogenous stimulations in order to achieve these what we call altered states of consciousness. And um, uh, the uh, do, 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 let's see, uh, this is. I apologize that it's oh, taking no a no. bit of time here. Um, yeah, so this is on page 82 of the most recent edition of the John Whitmer Historical Association. Uh, it's under the subtitle or subheading of endogenous and exogenous altered states of consciousness, uh, saying, quote, endogenous praxis, prayer, 
fasting, dancing, tantric sex, breathing exercises uh, can lead to hallucinations without the use of psychoactive agents. However, ingestion of these agents can aid or accelerate mystical or theophanic experiences. This is a kind of a shortcut, since the predictability of the outcome can be shared with far less attention paid to set and setting. Put simply, one can see angels and demons without the exogenous stimulus of hallucinations, but if ingested, these substances will cause nearly every group participant to see angels and demons or the like. Should a psychedelic dosage be coupled with proper attention to set and setting, the participant may achieve an altered state of consciousness with life-changing implications. Yeah, and that's, so, I think that that's the key thing, too, is what I, yeah. when I just doing my, my little peripheral study of this. And of course, you've been so much more deeper in the weeds than I have ever gotten on this. But one of the things, one of my biggest takeaways is that these substances that you are, are ingesting are not, they're actually just activating parts of your brain that already exist in other words you're capable you're 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 physically your your brain is capable of these hallucinate uh hallucinogenic experiences without the use of these drugs um and 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 so and and like you had mentioned like you know like fasting and all these different things that one could do that could put them in this altered state uh so it, so we have to take that into account because a lot of religious experiences, for instance, I've been in those rooms. Now, this is fascinating. Uh, about a month ago, I, I, there was this local revival going on. So I thought, I'm going to go check this out. And they're using, they're actually have tubs and they're rebaptizing people. And they spend like 45 minutes praying over these people in the tub. And they're like having these experiences. Uh, and I, but I, I, I went, I didn't actually, I went in for about 45 minutes. And I walk in there and there was a room full of people who were anticipating. It was a room full of anticipation. Mm -hmm. Everybody there was on the edge of their seat that something was going to happen. It's the mindset, right? Yeah. The, these are important. These 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 have psychedelic terms. The mindset, that's the set, right? Uh, the setting is is where where you are, the people you're around, the expectation of what's going to happen. Are you in a place where you are able to concentrate on the altered state of consciousness or is the TV on or is some distraction going to happen? Is somebody walking past you that you don't expect, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of it builds on this, this sense of expectation and this sense of I'm about to have a spiritual experience once this specific ritual, whatever that ritual is, whether that's prayer whether that's glossolalia speaking in tongues whether that's a fasting whether that's a specific uh you know like physical uh ritual like you know in the mormon temple ceremonies whatever you're building the mindset that is placing the user in that setting that is going to increase the chances that they're going to have a uh, you know a spiritual experience um so now i guess a lot of people i i if 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 you're having these experiences, let's just say that the wine was spiked. What is the most likely uh, substance you think was being utilized in those in in those services in the 1830s? Uh, so there are a couple of uh, different times where I believe that different substances were most likely to have been used for different reasons. Uh, from the early history of the visionary period, we're talking 1823 to 30. This is when Joseph Smith is experimenting where he's going out into the woods and seeing deity. Um, he's, you know, he's drinking a lot of cider. He's, you know, doing day labor stuff, but also out with his friends uh, treasure hunting at night. 
um, this this early visionary period, it appears that uh, uh, I, my my most likely uh, candidates are that they were probably dabbling into various um, uh, species of fungi. And that the the fungi available to them, I, I mean, I personally have gone mushroom hunting in the sacred grove in September when I was there for uh, John Whitmer in, you know, uh, in uh, 2019, I believe it was. Oh. And I was able to, you know, I, I didn't actually take specimens myself, but I was able to photograph many, 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 many different specimens of, of mushrooms. Uh, they just grow everywhere and not just in the sacred grove, but in any forest, right? They, these, these are native fungi. The spores exist all around us at all times. Uh, if you look in the right place at the right time, you're going to find some psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, so that's almost likely. However, I do believe that the Smiths uh, dabbled a little bit into uh, nightshades. And nightshades are a very, very interesting uh, form of psychedelic. They are... Uh, far more dangerous they're far more poisonous uh and nightshades are you know nightshades are extremely useful to us i, I mean potatoes and tomatoes are nightshades right but also um the the hexing herbs some of the hexing herbs uh like hemlock and henbane these these are nightshades these are these can be very dangerous and very poisonous uh especially if they are not um processed in the right way now some methods of processing just you know kitchen chemistry that the 19th century peoples were familiar with could render some of the uh the more uh convulsive alkaloids in these uh inert so you could process them uh, just using basic chemistry to uh, to make it so that you can you can take a higher dosage uh, and still have the psychoactive effects of nightshades. Uh, it's just much less likely that you'll slip into a coma or you'll convulse or you'll die outright. Um, but I do believe that the Smith family had, uh, uh, I would say, what, the best way I would describe it is an altercation with nightshades, and that actually resulted in the death of Alvin Smith in uh, yeah. 1824. Yeah, talk about that. That's an interesting part of your paper about Alvin's death. Yeah, so uh, Alvin's death is interesting because basically all we have from it is uh, the medical bill that is, you know, that is the the doctor who uh, took care of him, um, and we have the autopsy report that is from his mother uh, that is remembered later. That's Lucy Max reminiscence in eighteen forty five. So this is twenty years after the actual uh, event took place. However, she did describe that when they conducted the autopsy. Uh, they they opened up Alvin's uh, stomach and found that there was uh, gangrene. He was uh, had a, an infection of gangrene in his uh, in his intestines. And what's notable about this is um, uh, that the, they found the mercury that he had he had been administered by the physicians lodged in his stomach that was not able to go through his system because of the gangrene. And uh, uh, one thing that's notable about uh, nightshade uh, overdose is, uh, and this is something that was noted in many herbal botanicals of the day, uh, is that uh, the the botanicals would say that it it can cause gangrene, which is an infection in the person's stomach. Essentially, what happens is many of these psychedelics are, I, of course, the clinical term uh, slips me, uh, they, they stop you up. 
they make it very difficult uh, to pass, uh, which means that if you're taking them over a long period of time or if you're you're not doing anything for care afterwards, that you can become uh, very constipated uh, and your an infection can take over. Uh, and I believe that based on the information that Lucy reports of the autopsy from Alvin Smith, that a likely uh, cause of his death uh, could have been um, psychedelic overdose. And had he uh, had the family physician who may have been, you know, we make this point in the paper, if Alvin had the family physician who knew that the Smiths were using psychedelics or had uh, awareness of, the, you know, the possibility that Alvin Smith had overdosed, um, he might have been able to uh, prescribe or to um uh, to provide uh, an emetic or uh, a diuretic or something that can cause or would help Alvin to process uh, the blockage that could have saved his life. Uh, but because they were using a physician who wasn't the family's physician who was unfamiliar, he was instead administering mercury. Uh, and that eventually seems to be, you know, part of the cause of his death. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I find, like I said, I find this find this to be very fascinating. You're you've now entered in. I mean, of course, you've written some papers. You've, you're now in like this is legit stuff here. You're in the John Whitmer Journal now. Yeah. Um, tell me what kind of responses you and pushback that you've been getting since you've been advocating this hypothesis. Uh, the most of the pushback that I've gotten is that it is speculative uh, and that it's conjectural. Uh, and, uh, you know, we even make this point in the book that the, the direct evidence, we don't have direct evidence of Joseph Smith's handwriting of his specific psychedelics recipe, right? That, that, that if that document exists, it's not available for research. Uh, and I, you know, I personally don't believe that it ever existed because Joseph Smith didn't write very much. Um uh, so people want to say, um, show me your work. Uh, they want to see more material on it. They want to see the book length uh, treatise on this. They want to see uh, something that is accepted to journals, um, to actual Mormon journals and not just the Journal of Psychedelic Studies uh, that doesn't ever do anything specific to Mormonism except for our paper in it. Um, and and they, they just want to see more of the material uh, because many of the people who I discuss it with are people who attend John Whitmer and Sunstone who you know, the, the, that group of people is self-selected to be fairly open-minded about Mormon history. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be at John Whitmer, <laughs> right? They would yeah. be going to to, uh, to firm or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. There are places for those people, uh, but John Whitmer is a place for uh, academic scrutiny, and people there have been quite receptive of it. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, as the paper for the Journal of Psychedelic Studies was in its final editing phases, I did find I did send a copy off to Brian Hales. Now, Brian Hales, for anyone who doesn't know who this man is, uh, he's done a ton of research into the uh, history of polygamy and has written some of the the standard bearing books on polygamy in early Mormon history, particularly pre-manifesto. Um, he's also, uh, you know, his, his current research projects are much more focused on the Book of Mormon, but he's somebody who uh, is a hobby historian and has written quite a lot on Mormon origins and also comes from a faithful background and is also professionally an anesthesiologist. So he's one of the very few people who has the, the medical background, uh, who is a believing Mormon, who is seen as an apologist by, uh, by many people in the, the Mormon history community. 
and has enough expertise to be able to evaluate the material within the paper. And uh, uh, Brian was nice enough to write a uh, response to it and publish it in uh, in uh, Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Uh, sorry, that's Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Interpreter. Uh, I can't remember the subtitle of Interpreter. Uh, it's a faithful academic mm -hmm. journal. Uh, and I, I highly recommend reading his rebuttal to it because he spends, I, I mean, basically two thirds, the first two thirds of his paper, he goes through with the, uh, the various candidate entheogens that we discuss. And this is everything from, um, uh, uh William C. Lefofora, that's, you know, peyote, uh, to psilocybe mushrooms, uh, to emanated muscaria mushrooms, to toad venom, uh, to ergot, to uh, uh, the, all of the nightshades. So, like we run the gamut. We we essentially in our journal psychedelic studies paper threw a whole bunch out there and said these are the likely candidates that we have. And Brian Ailes went through the history of all of these these candidates and how likely they were to have been accessible by Joseph Smith. And then he spends essentially like a few paragraphs near the end of the the papers saying that this is something that joseph smith would never do mm. and and that and that's it that's that's it um so i i recommend his paper is an incredible resource to i i mean like i i almost want to ask him if i can just take the first two-thirds of his paper and make it an appendix to my paper because it's such good material and this guy is an anesthesiologist he knows these materials. He uses synthetic versions of these plant medicines in the you know in clinic every day. Uh, so he's he's somebody who has a lot of overlap in these fields, uh, and he he just essentially said that this is something that Joseph Smith wouldn't do. Um, and and you know that, that that's that's his value judgment. That's that's his value judgment, and I respect that. That's his prerogative to make, and I I'm happy to disagree with him on it. Well, and this is the other thing. See, so often um, when people are dealing with the history of the Mormonism, they often neglect another uh, strain, which is through the RLDS line. So here right. you have a story. Uh, you talk about Emma giving a recipe for a healing salve to Joseph Smith III. We also have Joseph Smith III's son, Joseph Smith's grandson, who uh, experiments with peyote. And... Right. I think that so when somebody says Joseph Smith wouldn't have done it, but yet we have this lineage of Emma and er herbs uh, with hallucinogenic qualities, Joseph Smith III, and then his son. Actually, it's interesting. A lot of folks don't realize this, but his son was actually kind of helpful in starting the Native American church, which also then ties in with this idea of like, first of all, what are their views? Like they're Lamanites. You know, and then, you know, and, he's, and they're experimenting with these things. So so you have like this this other thread that shows that within the Joseph Smith lineage, the idea of ingesting these uh, would not have been verboten. Correct. And uh, I think Fred M. Smith is somebody who is a really fascinating case study within the field of, of restoration tradition studies. Uh, and when I say Mormon studies, I mean, that's a very, very broad umbrella that includes all factions of Mormonism that hail from the common soil of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. Uh, so Fred M. Smith is actually a fascinating character, and he didn't just experiment with peyote. He wrote his doctoral thesis mm -hmm. on what we today call altered states of con uh, consciousness. He called it ecstatic states, ecstatic experiences. Uh, but he very clearly in his, you know, his doctoral uh, thesis, uh, and this is a doctorate of psychology, by the way. 
uh, in his thesis, he describes the various ritualistic practices as well as the ingestion of various psychedelics in order to induce these ecstatic experiences. Uh, and, and it's it you know Fred M. Smith is actually quite fascinating uh, within the field outside within American psychedelic history, um, and he it's very odd that he. He does hold some history with the foundations of the Native American Church, as well as with the, uh, the various uh, psychedelics groups that were started at Harvard and other academic institutions that kind of carried into the psychedelic revolution of the 1960s, 50s and 60s. Uh, so Fred M. Smith actually has tendrils into a number of these uh, these places. His history is slightly influencing, uh, you know, he he's sending off peyote buttons to friends and, and, you know, saying, write me back what you thought about it. You know, tell me what tell me what your experience was like. Um, and he's he's a very uh, interesting figure because he's a dogmatic and iron fisted leader of the RLDS church. And he's constantly fighting with his, uh, with his leadership over this concept of supreme directional control. And he is envisioning a futuristic world and a futuristic society. And he is trying to adapt the RLDS church to be part of the 20th century at the earliest days of the 20th century. Uh, so in many ways, he's a revolutionary. And he's also tapping into these religious and spiritual practices and using psychedelics and pointing out that people have been using psychedelics uh, since the Eleusinian mysteries. Like he he discusses all of these things. And um, it he does note that the uh by when he was writing this in uh 1915 i believe is the publication date uh that peyote was being uh was being policed uh and that the native americans are having a hard uh, harder and harder time uh finding it and being able to use it because uh policing of it is is beginning to increase uh but there were no there were still by 1915 there were no federal prohibitions on you know psychedelic substances these things are all legal you can walk around with peyote buttons whereas today you'll get arrested for that uh, so so it is an interesting thing to view him, you know, writing about his world and his psychedelic world, you know, society in, you know, a hundred years ago and compare it to what happened through the early to mid 20th century and then the war on drugs at the end of the 20th century and then try and uh, compute these things as happening now. Uh, there, there's a very odd cyclical nature to these uh, these historical events. Did Fred ever write anything about the, did he ever speculate that perhaps psychedelics was used in the early church at all? Not his own church. He did uh, on a number of churches. He talked about the usage of sacrament and uh, hallucinogenics or uh, the even just the alcohol being used uh, in the spiritual idea in various religions. He never uh, speculated or even touched on his grandpa possibly doing it. Uh, which I was I was a little disappointed in, but also he was writing this about to become prophet of the yeah. church. It's you know, it's uh, one thing that it's a point that we make in the paper as well is that uh, modern regulations evolved from existing cultural prejudices, right? Drugs, you know, in most societies, drugs have often been used to exclude people. They have been used to look down on people using them. Uh, the people in the Great and Spacious Building are laughing at Lehigh as he's partaking of the uh, of the fruit, right? Uh, and and so, like the the prejudices have always ex or have existed for you know for a long time. But the regulations obviously evolved from those things. So 
yeah <laughs> it is it's very interesting to consider a world where these topics are taboo but not necessarily illegal yeah now let's talk about that actually about um joseph smith senior's uh, vision which some people speculate was was uh influential if you will on uh, lehi's uh, dream vision uh, as described in the book of mormon and also maybe even talk to the idea that uh it seems like it's implied in the book of mormon with like hallucinogenic trips so let's talk about joseph Smith senior and the book of mormon ha- uh, kind of hinting at this kind of stuff so the visionary experiences in the book of mormon so a, a little background the book of mormon for anyone who hasn't read it it's a very disjointed and odd book. Uh, it's it's it, I, I'm happy to say that it's a very poorly written piece of literature, but the authorship history of it helps to explain some of the content within the pages of it. Uh, so Joseph Smith begins uh, dictating this to Martin Harris. They write the 116 pages. This is known as the Book of Lehi. And this is what Martin Harris supposedly took to his wife and that she hid and tried to get Joseph to recreate it. And he couldn't. So then he instead rewrites the beginning of the book that becomes the first, second Nephi, and then the minor prophets, Jerem, Omni, Enos. Uh, and then I think it's Words of Mormon that then transitions into Messiah. Uh, so what's notable about this is they wrote that first portion. And Joseph, once he learned that Martin Harris had lost the 116 pages, he picked up from there uh, with the help of Oliver Cowdery. They began writing at, essentially at Messiah chapter one or Messiah chapter two, and then wrote till the end of the book. And then for some reason, Ether is just shoved in there, very, very out of place, a very weird, weird book. And then when they're at the very end of the writing the Book of Mormon, that's when they go back to the beginning and write first and second Nephi and then the minor prophets that get us into Messiah. So the authorship history is notable because what we tend to see is that the first and second Nephi borrow heavily from uh, other texts. That's all the Isaiah chapters are in there, right? Um, From Bible commentaries and from Joseph Smith's autobiography. There are many uh, elements within first and second Nephi that are autobiographical to Joseph Smith's life. And why this is notable is we have the the visionary experience of Lehi. Uh, he experiences this great and spacious building, and this is this is very iconic Mormon uh, imagery uh, for people who are unfamiliar with uh, the the great and spacious building. Just do a quick Google search on the great and spacious building or Lehi's vision. You'll be able to see all of this Mormon artwork, all of these lesson manuals that implement this. This is one of the first things that people stumble into in the Book of Mormon. It's in the very earliest pages, even though it's some of the last material that was actually written for the Book of Mormon. Uh, So Lehi has this visionary experience, and we see uh, it very closely mirrored uh, in the visionary experience of Joseph Smith Sr. Now, this is Joseph's dad. So there's this uh, there's this autobiographical tendency that Lehi has a vision and then his son Nephi seeks and asks God and has the same vision. Uh, Joseph Smith Sr. has a visionary experience and then Joseph Smith Jr. writes that visionary the visionary experience of his father into the Book of Mormon. So we see kind of a fun parallel within these this father-son, the patrilineal dynamic. But uh, beyond that, the material that uh, Lucy Mack reports about Joseph Sr.'s dreams, it all comes from Lucy. And it all comes from Lucy in 1845. This is five years after Joseph Smith Sr. had died. This is 
50 years after the vision and vision supposedly happened. So Lucy at this time, when she's recounting these visionary experiences, she's a, she's an elderly woman. She, you know, all but one of her sons have died. Uh, she has a few daughters alive who are, you know, keeping her alive. And she's very, very close with Emma. Uh, and she remains, um, uh, in uh, in Kirtland or in, not in Kirtland, uh, sorry, in Nauvoo until like 1847 or something like that, and then she passes away just a few years later. Uh, but Lucy, as as this elderly woman, is recounting the you know biographical sketches of the prophet and his progenitors, and she details that Joseph Smith Senior had a series of seven visions, and she writes out five of them in detail. Uh, she also writes her own visionary experiences she had. And the experience that she writes that Joseph Sr. had is very, very similar to what we see as the vision within the Book of Mormon that, that Lehi had with the great and spacious building, with the plant that they're eating, with the, the big barren open field and with the river, with the, you know, many other elements are, are uh, intertwined between the two. Uh, so w one thing that's... Uh, hard for me to work with with when it comes to lucy's account and joseph smith you know re recounting her husband's visions from 40 50 years before is that that's a long time it's a long time for these things to have from when they happened to when they're written down for us to say she wrote it accurately or she dictated this accurately uh, but it could also be one of those things that this is just a story that Joseph Smith Sr. told around the fire at night to the entire Smith family. And it's something that he would recite to them, uh, you know, every few nights or every month or every a couple of weeks or whatever, just as like they're doing family story time that Joseph Smith Sr. is telling this repetitive uh, visionary experience and that she's just remembering all of those nights that he told these visionary experiences and you know she's writing it down as if it it's an, a single individual event um so you know the extent to which her account of what happened actually mirrors what the visionary experience joseph smith senior had that's very difficult to maintain because that's a long passage of time it's not firsthand. It is secondhand from the person who actually had it. And it's from somebody who's, you know, the mother, the mother and the husband of the figure, the central figures that we're talking about in all of this. Um, so what uh, one way to consider Lucy Mack's recounting of Joseph Sr.'s uh, visions is that she herself is passing down uh, the entheogenic uh, material allegorically for whoever is going to read this. And this is this is something that dabbles into a very speculative world, but it's what the entire paper is about, is the people who are reading the Book of Mormon and have the visionary mindset to find the hidden information. They read a or they, they came away with a different message from the Book of Mormon than somebody who's just reading it as a topical book of scripture. And uh, this uh, this harkens back to something we discussed earlier that. Mormons don't usually do drugs, but when somebody has the background uh, or has done a little bit of research into psychedelics, when they read the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony, they say, oh, yeah, OK, so it sounds like they're they're on drugs. It sounds like there's drugs in the sacrament. 
because their eyes are attuned to look for that information, that information that's hiding in plain sight. Um, so the, the same thing happens with reading the visionary experiences within the Book of Mormon. If you're somebody who has the background to look for the magic and occult rituals, and if you're looking for these visionary experiences, and you're looking for these things as hidden signals within the text, you're going to glean more information from the book than just the casual reader who is reading this as an allegory for the righteous people and the wicked people. Uh, you're going to see uh, not just the righteous people are you know, holding fast to the iron rod and the wicked people are in the great and spacious building. You're going to see your own lived experience in, oh, those are the rich elites who laugh at me when I am partaking of the Lord's sacrament, the psychedelic uh, you know, fruit of the Lord. Uh, you're going to see your own lived experience in that. You're going to gain more information from reading those passages in the Book of Mormon. And within this same vein, I believe it's reasonable to conclude that Lucy Mac Smith may have been passing on this entheogenic information allegorically to younger generations who would read about the history of, of her son and of the church. Uh, I believe that she was deliberately crafting or writing these, uh, these, these visionary experiences to specifically pass down specific psychedelic chemicals to the people who would read her, her memoir. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, I, I I like to I love speculation. So let me ask you a question. Talk about another speculation that I really think is really cool. Is yeah. Don Bradley wrote the book, The Lost 116 Pages. Right. Um, have you uh, gone through that and see if maybe some of those stories that were apparently told about the Book of Mormon, um, the Lost 116 Pages, do, do you see any of a, a pattern going on in there as well? I have not read uh, Don's book. Uh, I I was very excited to interview him uh, about it before it was actually published. Uh, so I didn't have a copy of it to read before I interviewed him. Uh, so I actually have not read Don's book, uh, but I, he's somebody I consider a very dear friend. And uh, he's um, his work within the actual material that was in the 116 pages uh, it's extremely speculative. Uh, he is basing a lot of information on just a couple of scant few passages that are remembrances that people had from conversations they had with Joseph Sr. Uh, or with Martin Harris. Uh, so he is he's taking a couple of those those passages and then using that as a uh, basically a heuristic to expand out and speculate what would be you know what's the content what's the content likely within the 116 pages. Uh, I think it's fascinating and it's very speculative. I personally haven't read it myself, uh, but I, I'm sure there's a treasure trove of material in there. Um, but, you know, the, another thing is that like until we have the 116 pages and we can verify that indeed what he is, what Don Bradley is speculating is, you know, it comports with the text. It's it's very difficult to say that what he is saying is anything more than speculation. But you know that's a charge that I deal with in in my you know research as well, and I, I deal with it as well. So you know it's it's all part of the speculative nature of history. And that's what I love about studying um, Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon guy. Love it. I love the early history. That's my favorite. That's my wheelhouse. Is those early days of the church, yeah. being a charismatic, coming from a charismatic Pentecostal background. Uh, the church services are very familiar to me. I've been there. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, that that's just really cool. So yeah, Don, uh, check out my interview, folks, by the way, with Don Bradley. We talk about uh, the lost 116 pages. Uh, that's a really interesting stuff. I, I also think that even like this whole idea of the Masonic influence 
on the text of the Book of Mormon to be a very fascinating thing. What I think is interesting is that, you know, I can, there's so many layers to this and that so many people bring something to it. Now, I just wonder, I, I'm just curious, <clears throat> do you think that when people do a lot of speculation on the Book of Mormon, that's saying more about the person than it is saying about the book? that you're bringing your biases or your worldview to the book and then you're reading in, into it? Like, what do you think of that? I, I mean, I think that's that's fair, but also that's the importance of diversity in historical studies and, and scholarship, right? Because I'm going to read the Book of Mormon with a very different lens than Rod Meldrum is, uh, as is Don Bradley, as is Dan Vogel, as is anybody who studies the Book of Mormon, whether they're you know studying it in depth or whether they're just doing a passing reading of it, are going to have wildly different interpretations. And uh, you know, try as we might, uh, even the faithful button seat Mormons who go to church every Sunday reading their Book of Mormon, they're going to have their own personal interpretations of this passage of scripture, of that passage, of this prophet, of that warrior, whatever, right? They're, they're going to have their own internal um, perspectives of these that will largely be informed by the correlated material that the church presents, uh, but will still have, uh, you know, the, the, they'll still apply it to their lives and therefore understand different passages differently. Um, at Sunstone, I was lucky enough to uh, to engage in a scripture study session with uh, with uh, myself being an atheist, with a fellow atheist, with a person uh, who considers themselves a Gnostic, uh, and a person who is a fundamentalist Mormon and uh, an apostle from the uh, the R from the RLDS Church, now the Community of Christ. Uh, and and we're in this hodgepodge of misfit scripture study, and we're all studying John chapter six, I think. I, I don't know the Bible very well. We were in the scripture study, and it was interesting that we would read two or three verses, and then we would spend 10, 15 minutes discussing what is meant in these passages. What what are they actually talking about? How do we apply this? And just in this, this band of misfits, we all had vastly different interpretations of how to read that text. And it is informed by our backgrounds. And, and that's, of course, going to be the case whether you're reading a book of scripture or whether you're reading a book that is recounting historical events or a, a book that is comparing different accounts of individual historic events. You're going to come at it with your own prejudices and your own biases and your own understandings, which highlights the importance of having diversity in these spaces, in these academic circles, because you, you know, Stephen Pinecker, you having, uh, you reading the Book of Mormon, you're going to see a totally different book than Aaron Ross sees when he gathers his atheists together to do a Book of Mormon scripture study. That's diversity of opinions, and that helps. That that helps to broaden the scope because you may say something that I've never considered. I may say something you never considered. Those are all helpful things. That all expands all of our collective minds more. Those are good things to have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm curious. Uh, you know, I think up until the 1920s, marijuana use was still fairly common in the Mexican um, Mormons. Uh, do we have any engagement of Mormons in the 19th and 20th century who might have been using drugs and engaging the the text and also maybe using some of this stuff in uh in us in any kind of like a spiritual context I mean we know there was drug use at some point uh even into the 20th century within faithful Mormons yes uh we it's it's weird how the modern the modern cultural milieu created by the modern word of wisdom 
is completely foreign to the foundations of the church like modern day straight laced mormons with you know really really tight neckties never drinking anything that's even caffeinated that's not the mormons we've always had that's a that's a modern mormon creation that's a that's a that's a mormonism since the 1940s and 50s uh prior to that it was a very different church and prior to even the 1910s when the church was trying to you know shut down polygamy uh, it was a very different church in the 1870s the 1850s it was an extremely militant church in the 1840s it was a political church uh so the the church has grown and shaped and changed and the people along with it so in order uh, for, for Mormons today to impose their conception of the word of wisdom on the early Mormons is folly at best, uh, which does, you know, lead to us saying that, you know, the word of wisdom came about because the guys were in the school of prophets. They were, you know, chewing tobacco and smoking their pipes and it was gross. And Emma was sick of cleaning it up. Uh, she was also sick of it. Her kitchen was right underneath the school of the prophets. Uh, when they would spit on the floor, it would seep through the cracks and drop down on the table she was working on, drop down on her head. That's gross, right? So word of wisdom came about through, you know, pragmatic uh, circumstances. But the modern interpretation is vastly, vastly different. Um, you know, Brigham Young owned stills, right? <laughs> like, like the early Mormons drank. You know, Brigham Young uh, was using uh, whiskey enemas to deliver medicine to himself uh, throughout his, you know, entire latter half of his life. Uh, so the conception of medicine, the conception of like clinical doctors prescribing medicine, uh, the uh, the prohibition against alcohol. Uh, and tea and caffeine and, and and coffee, all of these things are much more modern Mormon creations, uh, which means that there's this disconnect when we're reading, you know, through our lens, we're trying to read about the people in the 19th century. These are things that are just blasé. These are things that are are not even controversial to them and probably not even noteworthy to put in a journal. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a regular journal keeper. I don't write that I went to the store today because it's blase. I write about something notable that happened today, but I don't talk about something that I do that is just part of my day to day practice because it doesn't matter. It's it's wasted time. It's wasted paper. It's wasted space. It's wasted effort of my hand writing it. So these things that are just culturally given of I went to the store today. I, it's not necessary for me to write that in the journal. And that's one of the the uh, my explanations for the dearth of evidence when it comes to people saying that I put the the psilocybe mushrooms in the sacramental wine. Everyone got up. It was awesome. Right. Uh, we don't see that 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 document because I just don't think that it, it ever existed because it didn't ever need to exist. Hmm. Uh, I, when you started engaging this topic and. Uh, doing this research. Tell me, what are some of the biggest surprises uh, that you've encountered? Uh, things you weren't expecting, things that you learned about Mormonism or about this whole hypothesis, uh, this idea. Just come and talk a little bit about that. Uh, I would say uh, what's been most surprising is my own kind of uh, journey of spiritualism through all of it as well. Um, because I, uh, I'm somebody who's lucky enough to access, uh, spiritual experiences without the use of psychedelics. Uh, however, psychedelics obviously amplify those spiritual experiences. And I, when I say spiritual, that's a very heavy term. It's a term with a lot of baggage, but it's also a term that carries a lot of weight. Uh, so the, the, 
idea that or the problem that uh, there's a small portion of the population who their their brain chemistry is just simply not wired to be able to access spirituality to access the feelings that bubble up that believers call god that atheists call um having a good feeling but for lack of words for lack of better terms we use spiritual in a very broad context for this so myself uh being an atheist learning about all of these things and doing research into this field it's very interesting to me that there are so many people who uh, use psychedelics who then attribute these things to God. But after you have a psychedelic experience, it's also very difficult to say that, you know, because our, you know, this is accessing uh, brain chemistry and this is accessing feelings that existed long before we had language to describe these things. Uh, they're, they're, for lack of better terms, it often feels like a connection with existence, a connection with the universe. Uh, you you feel absorbed into the universe as part of it, uh, as one single uh, breathing, existing uh, singular entity. And a, a lot of psychonauts call this God. Uh, I want to say psychonaut, this is a person who frequently uses these things for recreational or for spiritualistic practices. Um, so my, my, I myself, like I am uh, somebody who has access to spiritual experiences on the natch, right? I, I can't, you know, uh, like I can't see like tracers and like get super, super um, ecstatic uh, naturally, but I do get those feelings. I get those things. And I can get those things whether I'm, you know, remembering a good memory or whether I'm, you know, consuming a really good story or whether I'm listening to a really, really good riff in a metal song. I can get those spiritual experiences. I can access those things. And I understand that that's the same brain and body chemistry that is being accessed when uh, a dosage is implemented into the, the research. Um, so I myself, I, I have found it surprising just how many people who you know, who take a, a chemical, they know what is going to happen when they take the chemical, and then they instead attribute what their experience is to God. And for me, it's like, it's like thanking God when the surgery was successful and saved the little girl's life. It's like, hey, like the surgeons did the thing. There's the, there's the naturalistic explanation of the surgeons. Oh, God guided the hand of the surgeons. Okay, you could say that if you want, but like the, the, the surgeons used the science and the naturalistic methods to cure this person of this illness that was going to kill them. Uh, that, that's really, really important. Uh, so I myself, you know, I find naturalistic explanations for these spiritual experiences, um, but I find it interesting how many people are attributing those, of course, to deity or to a higher power. So you would say you're a spiritual atheist? Uh, I would say I am an atheist who enjoys feeling and once again that's the the term spiritual in this like throwing it at me in that context is weaponized right you're a spiritual atheist like <laughs> like what is that even supposed to mean it means that I, I i am a person who is an atheist who i am able to access the feelings of that spirit the quickening of the spirit as it's often called in scripture in mormon studies Right. I, I, I'm able to have spiritual experiences, even though I don't attribute those experiences to a deity. I attribute it to what's going on up here. It's really, hmm. really interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I can totally see how your worldview could is purely naturalistic. And I get that. OK, because I was an atheist for a long time. So, you know, a lot of what you're saying jives with me. You know, I don't feel very defensive. Like, oh, no, no, because, you know, I kind of I get it. I get where you're coming from. Um, mm -hmm. But I also can see how um, 
you look at like the, the, the countercultural revolution happened in the 1960s. It was a lot of drugs, but it was also a lot of spirituality that was mm -hmm. happening at the same time. So one can also see how, um, see, I look at it this way. We are hardwired to be spiritual for the most part. I tell people um, that's what got us here in the first place was we believe in something bigger than ourselves. Our ancestors did when they started burying their dead. And they started recognizing that they were just more than pieces of meat, you know, the dead, you know, the, the dead bodies, that there was something bigger, that there was an afterlife. Uh, uh, so, and, and also, of course, we also have theories that perhaps they were using psychedelics as well and having spiritual experiences and, and all that. Um, so it's, it's, it's so ingrained in who we are. So even though there was this great cultural revolution that was against all the institutions, including religion, it still did not change the fact that it was also a highly spiritual movement going on at the same time. What do you what do you have to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and it shouldn't just be limited to the countercultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. That's just the most recent example that we have of it. And then, of course, the cultural response to it. Uh, we, we are we're living through the hellscape that is the cultural response to the countercultural revolution uh, that, that it didn't it didn't revo re revolutionize right it it was something that that grew up it had a, a threat uh to the 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 culture as it stood to the desire culture and that is something that uh the, the the culture was uh insulated enough to be able to repel that revolution um which has caused a uh almost a diasporic uh, expansion of various discrete revolutions that have existed kind of underground because these practices were largely driven underground and into illegality when prior to the 70s there was a ton of medical research that was going on with uh, with psychedelics um so to to that point right the the there is something to be said, uh, and, and this is this is really common with you know psychonaut uh, culture is that like these are these are this is these these chemicals are how you change your mind these and you know that's that's a Michael Pollan book how to change your mind that goes through the history uh, and the modern uh, culture of psychedelics uh, it's just a great one one book on on all of these materials uh, but the there there's this sentiment that these are iconoclastic chemicals that these can be used to fell evil empires that these can be used if you know if uh, we could just get all of the world leaders to get in a room and drink psilocybin tea together then all world problems would be solved <laughs> and while that's a fun sentiment and while i love that idea that hey there's this one magic drug that is going to cure evil and is going to cure all of society's problems I don't think it's very realistic. And that is, uh, I, I think it isn't very realistic because oftentimes when these little countercultural revolutions begin, whether they, you know, whether it's a, you know, psychedelic uh, spawning through the 1960s and 70s that we saw, or whether we're just talking about the small Christian cults that were evolving uh, in the earliest centuries uh, of Christianity that were eventually all squashed by Catholicism, right? Like what you know, whatever these countercultural revolutions are, religious or social or psychosocial in some respects, then they can exist uh, and they they never really die. They just take on different shapes. They mold and adapt with the culture as a counterpart to the culture that is forcing them to fit into a certain shape. Um, 
I think it's awesome, but you know, myself, I, I, I think, um, a, a lot of people, uh, who are frequent users of psychedelics will put more power into them than they actually have. And that, I think that, that, that could be just as much folly as thinking that, you know, counterculture is ever going to, uh, take hold. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about my personal journey and story. Uh, you probably know little bits and pieces, but I kind of had like a spiritual theopony uh, right around the time COVID started. And at this time, I would have probably considered myself an agnostic. And um, it's the weirdest thing, dude. I literally, all my fear of death, like I, I'm a type A, high, very anxious person, suffered lifelong depression since middle school. Um, and I just had this moment and it wasn't like all of a sudden, but it was just this realization that my fear of death was gone. My anxiety was like curtailed like 99%. Uh, my depression is, is, is really hardly there anymore. And it was a life-changing experience that happened to me. Now I attribute that to God, but I also can see how, um, I also hear about other people's experiences when they're taking these substances and they have also life-changing experiences where they don't, they lose their fear of death. Their anxiety is curtailed. Uh, they're a different person. And so I have to calculate that as well. Now, I I, I, I wasn't taking any substance. It just mm -hmm. happened. Um, what do you have to say about something like that? I think uh, this, this goes back to our conversation of the endogenous versus the exogenous yeah. uh, catalysts. Uh, for uh, spiritual experiences and uh there's um hmm. the weird part about it was is i was not actually anticipating it i was not in a setting um and you know all the all the all the ingredients you would need it just kind of was a realization that came over me now perhaps it was the stress of the covid situation that maybe unlocked it i don't know uh, so there's a lot to unpack in this, and uh, my me not being you, I I can only I can only begin a small speculations yeah. about how to interpret your individual experience, but um, I I think it's very important to contextualize your mindset in all of this, and uh, there there are certain things that uh, that our minds go through that can cause us to to be uh, to lean more towards having this experience, having a spiritual experience happen. Uh, and one of those is stress. A, a big one is stress. Uh, another one is uh, eating or lack thereof. Uh, so this is oftentimes why fasting and prayer are coupled together because you are meditating, you're engaging in a ritualistic practice while you're also depriving your body of the nutrients in order for your brain to essentially be firing on all cylinders. Uh, so the current stresses in your current mindset can cause your mind to be more likely or less likely to have a spiritual experience. Um um, and, and something that's important to note is the mindset as well. The you, Stephen, living in America, having this experience at that time is interpreted through an evangelical Christian lens. You, not Stephen, but you somebody else living somewhere else on the planet with a completely different cultural background may be attributing that experience to Allah or to Shiva or to any any other god or any other conception of deity or mythology. 
so it's important to note the cultural prejudices that often inform these things. And I've had a lot of um, Mormons, uh, people in the Mormon community uh, who come up to me and talk to me about this after I obviously made myself an, a lightning rod for psychedelic experiences in the Mormon community. Uh, but uh, ex-Mormons or Mormons will come up to me and say, I had a trip and I saw Joseph Smith. I had a trip and I saw Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. Uh, like they have these experiences. They see whatever it is that their brain is programmed to see within their context. So you, Stephen, living in America, you having an experience, uh, I think it's largely informed by the culture. And what it does point to is that you have access to these spiritual experiences endogenously, that you're able to access these things uh, with the catalyst just being you yourself putting yourself in the mindset or getting in the mindset and engaging in the ritualism to to induce these things you don't need to have a you know a chemical catalyst that sends you over the edge into that altered state of consciousness and i what i will say is that you can have that experience for yourself the person next door to you can have that experience for themselves but if you want the two of you to have a similar experience the two of you trip together and suddenly you're having a very similar mm. spiritual experiences because you're sharing the same catalyst. You're sitting in the same room. You're sharing the same uh, setting. Uh, you're possibly listening to the same music or watching the same show or whatever that is programming the mindset. So the two of you are going to have very similar spiritual experiences. Dude, I'm having so much fun. This is such a fascinating conversation, man. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, likewise. I, I just, uh, you know, just talk a little bit about just some other things here, too. So, uh, first of all, of course, many of you know you through your podcast uh, career. You've been a guest on also like Mormon Stories and other programs. And so you're very well known. Um, first of all, tell me a little bit about your experience jumping into this whole podcast world that I just got into about a year and a half ago, what that's been like for you. And then also let's give maybe you give a little preview of what's coming up next in your future. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Utah. I'm a big Mormon born in the covenant, uh, pioneer heritage, blue Mormon blood in my veins. Uh, so, you know, I, I grew up uh, just in a suburb of Salt Lake City, uh, essentially. Um, and I, you know, I was a stalwart member of the church. Uh, I was somebody who believed in it, uh, but also somebody who wasn't a big fan of the authoritarianism of the church. Somebody who, you know, I followed the rules, but also, you know, said, why do I have to follow this rule while I'm following this rule? Uh, so being somebody who has access to spiritual experiences, throughout the church many times i had these confirmations uh, i had these 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 experiences where i'm like i know the church is true i know the book of mormon is true i know joseph smith was a prophet and i i had those things just be programmed into me from a very young age and that was the lens that my spiritual feelings were taking on because they're programmed by the culture uh so uh, I continued growing up in the church and, you know, as I became a teenager, church became something I didn't want to do anymore. Um, but I didn't have strong, you know, convictions of is, you know, is God real? Is the church true? I just didn't like going to church very much. Uh, so I stopped attending church, uh, when I was 16 and that was wonderful. That was, that was absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, uh, for for me at the time, it's what I needed in my life. And uh, I graduated high school and I went uh, to a year of college uh, at Weaver State University. And uh, I 
what I needed for myself at that time was moving out of my parents' basement. Uh, so I, I dropped out of college and entered the workforce after that. And uh, very soon after that, moved out of the state of Utah, which you know provided a whole world of, wow, not everybody in the world is Mormon. <laughs> it's it's very weird to grow up in Utah and it's very difficult to drive more than 20 minutes and not see three churches the Mormon only Mormon churches and then when you know and when I'm driving my truck out in Colorado you know just some random down some random road it's like whoa there's a Mormon church I haven't seen one of those in months so it's it's a very odd thing to be transplanted out of the morador and live somewhere that isn't where there's a mormon church everywhere uh uh and that's when i started uh while i was driving trucks is when i started listening to podcasts when i started uh reading mormon history as well because i was trust i i was in my you know late early 20s i was i was trying to find out who i am i was trying to learn about the world i was trying to gain my own philosophy i was trying to gain my own morality uh, and this is also when I stumbled into um, atheist versus theist debates uh, and fell deeply in love with the hitch slaps, of course, from Christopher Hitchens. Oh, yeah, because, um, yeah, you know, you can't you can't not love those things. Right. Uh, so I, I I started learning all of these things. And then I while I was studying Mormon history as well, and I would hear somebody, uh, an atheist podcast or a Christian podcast or whatever, talking about elements of Mormon history. And it's like, wait, is that true? Or they would say something that I know is like not the correct date. And it's like, wait, hold on. Hang on a second. I'd pull over to the side of the road and pull out my phone and type up an email. Hey, you totally messed that up. It was actually 1834, not 1835. How dare you? <laughs> right. And for someone who's, you know, like an atheist podcast, who's just covering a topic of Mormon history or early Mormonism, a date like that doesn't matter much. But for somebody who is beginning the, the to enter the field of actual Mormon studies, the difference between 1834 and 1835 is a vastly different world. Those are very important dates. Uh, there, are, there are important differences in those years. So I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, listening to these podcasts and I'm like, I, I want to find the podcast that just tells the whole story of early Mormon history. I, and I want it not from the church. That was, that was my requirement is I don't want the church to tell me its own history because it's never going to tell me the whole story. Um, and that, that podcast just didn't exist. So that's when I started up naked Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for the first, uh, eight months that I was doing it, uh, it was, I was working full time and uh, putting out the podcast and it was very, very, very difficult. It was a lot of hours because everything on naked Mormonism, except for interviews and a couple of little bits, uh, is all scripted. Mm -hmm. Uh, so everything, each episode, you know, whether it's an hour and 10 minutes or eight hours, like my longest episode is every word is scripted. So that requires sitting down, researching, reading, finding all of the resources, and then writing an entire essay on these things, and then recording that essay, producing or, you know, editing and producing it, and then doing marketing for it. So uh, very quickly, I gained these, these skills. Uh, and that's when I started attending Sunstone. And I started attending John Whitmer Historical Association, Mormon History Association, I started going to the conferences, I started reading the journals to get like the, the what's the most recent research on what what's the direction of the field of Mormon academia? Uh, what are, what what are the du jour topics that people are discussing and focusing on most because I want to be up to speed on the most recent paper by this or that historian. 
Uh, so yeah, uh, eventually I gave my listeners an ultimatum. I said, Hey, if you'll hire me full time, then I'll quit driving trucks and I'll be able to not, I won't have to work 100 hour weeks. Uh, and my listeners stepped up and it was very kind of them. Uh, and I transitioned to doing uh, podcasting full time after that. That is Uh, awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and then uh, through Naked Mormonism, I did the entire serialized history of Joseph Smith. Uh, when it came to his death, I uh, I put the podcast on hiatus because all of my materials um, I've promised my listeners books, and I don't I haven't written a book yet. So uh, I put the podcast on hiatus at kind of the natural breathing point of Joseph Smith dying um, before launching into the diaspora, uh, the 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 succession crisis. Uh, and that is, you know, to answer your, the second element of your question, what lays in the future is yeah. that's, that's what I'm working on right now is putting all this research into book format. Uh, just, um, looking at the history of Mormonism through the lens of psychedelics. Um, but also, you know, the, uh, an entire overview of early church, Joseph Smith history specifically. Uh, so I showed yeah. you a, a poll that I just put on my community page on YouTube yesterday afternoon. Yeah. Shows about a third of my audience is atheist and agnostic. So for those of you who are wondering, like, why is he having this atheist on? Well, about a third of my audience is in Bryce's camp. And I feel it's important that like I, I tell all the voices of the restoration will be heard here. And uh, you're a voice. And you're giving us a naturalistic explanation. There is no God. There's no supernatural. There's no angels. Everything that you experience is all in your head, essentially. Um, and this is how I can describe to you the history of the Mormonism purely through naturalistic means, which I think is highly useful because uh, it just gives us another uh, data. You give us the good data points that we have to contemplate and we have to work with that information. If we truly, truly want to engage uh, history, we have to take into account a purely naturalistic explanation for the history. That's correct. Because if you are inserting uh god if you're inserting theology into history it ceases to be history that is a that is a variable you know the big g god variable in any historical equation that will forever remain an unknown that we that that doesn't actually hold any explanatory power so we we have uh, to find ways to explain it i'm just curious have you ever had a spiritual experience that gave you pause that made you think maybe there is i'm curious gave me pause that maybe said maybe there is something more to this um that's that i mean that's just kind of a difficult question to answer because uh hmm. so anyone who's watching this who has ever dabbled into psychedelics uh will probably resonate with what i'm about to say more than people watching this who have never uh touched these these uh these plant medicines but um whenever you are in an altered state of consciousness it's very difficult to see the boundaries between oneself and the universe and whenever i'm in that state of mind uh the i i i don't just um it's it's so hard because the words that are uh, that i'm using and once again like spiritual these are heavy words with a lot of baggage that that also they they are load-bearing terms um 
when you're in that state of mind, it's very common to attribute it to God or to deity because you feel a connectedness, a oneness with everything, and your brain has no other way to describe what is going on. It's the logical part of your brain trying to label and trying to describe what is going on to you. Um, there, the, the words that we have for that are all within the concept or the world of spiritualism and belief in God. Uh, so when I'm in that state of mind, I understand why the majority of psychonauts believe in God and gods and many of them in pantheons of gods. Um, but I also understand that if that person and, and I are partaking the same substance in the same room, we're probably going to be seeing same similar things. We're probably going to be having similar experiences that I don't attribute to a deity. That is something that I attribute to the brain chemistry and the naturalistic, the naturalistic catalysts that are being ingested, which is also to say that it is much easier to do so on reflection than it is in the moment, because in the moment, your brain is processing so many non-typical chemicals uh, and and flow states that you're you're you you are unable to distinguish a lot of things that are going on from visionary versus reality. It's this a visionary magic uh, worldview. So in the moment, it's very hard for me to say that these are naturalistic things because my mind is expanded. I, I'm feeling the experiences that are so often couched in the concept of God. Uh, but on reflection, after I've come down, then it's like, oh, wow, Ma, that was an interesting experience. My brain chemicals can do some really cool shit. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's very difficult to answer your question and people listening back to this may think that I'm trying to deflect or may think that I'm not being very direct about these things. Uh, but that's just because I, uh, I am trying to accommodate the complexity of spiritual experiences within the various contexts uh, that people have those experiences. And I'm trying to describe my own experiences with as much, uh, with as only as much specificity as is necessary here. Well, uh, Bryce, uh, this was really a very informative conversation. I also want to say that one of the things I really enjoyed about this is a very readable paper. When I say that, it's it's engaging, it's interesting. A lot of the papers that I've read can be very dry and academic. Um, I felt it was just a very well written. Um, you and your co-author did a great job writing an engaging uh, paper, which I think is important. Uh, so it's it's so those those of you who are interested, this is not this is uh, it's you had written other papers that might perhaps might be a little bit uh, you know <laughs> uh, too much for people you know for for Correct. the layperson. But for a layperson, I heartily recommend that you uh, check out this paper because I think it it really does convey a lot of useful information and food for thought. I appreciate the plug. Yes. Uh, so we we did write that paper to be fairly accessible, especially to Mormon audiences who are largely the people who are actually reading the John Whitmer Journal. Uh, of course, if you're wanting to really get into the the nitty gritty of a much more clinical and academic paper, uh, I'll I'll send a link to uh, to Stephen that he can put in the show notes. Hopefully, uh, that is the link to the Journal of Psychedelic Studies paper, and that's kind of the that's the motherload episode that or uh, you know that paper that really trots us out and does so in a very clinical state. Well, sir, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the program today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. 
And folks, I just want to remind you, don't forget to hit the uh, notification button for when a new episode drops here on YouTube. Uh, also, uh, there will be links in the description for some of the stuff we talked about. Also, if you want to support the channel, you can. Uh, I'll have links for PayPal, Patreon, and of course, don't forget the merch store, mormonbookreviews.com. And I just got this in the mail today. Hey, we sell everything on the merch store. So uh, if you want to support us financially, really like Bryce, dude, you know, you got people stepped up and uh, helped you out. And I do want to thank all my contributors as well. We're getting caught up and trying to get the, this also in the podcast format. We are working on it. Anthony and I, I appreciate your patience. Uh, remember, folks, all the voices of the restoration will be heard here on Mormon Book Reviews.